Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, two Colorado scientists recently uncovered the oldest female infant burial in a cave in Europe. But in the midst of excavation, they had to leave the findings where they lay, hoping it would all still be there by the time they got back. We had to leave it, and we had to hope for the best. We'll hear the story of the team's discovery. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. On today's show, we're going to travel way back to a period of time on this planet that we don't know much about, roughly 10,000 years ago. The planet was leaving the Ice Age in a much larger pattern of warming and cooling climate events, and this had major impacts on the environments people were living in. Not long after, agriculture starting to be developed around the world, and a shift was beginning away from hunting and gathering, a shift that would have profound changes on human bodies, minds, and culture for millennia to come. We've gained collective insight into the past through many archaeological findings, such as burial sites. But the further back you go, the fuzzier the picture becomes. And that takes us to a cave in present-day Italy, where our next two guests and a team of other researchers recently discovered the oldest female infant burial in Europe. The team dated the infant back 10,000 years and have been working since to further analyze their findings to build a better understanding of what life may have been like for this infant child and her family all that time ago. We're joined now by two Colorado scientists who've been closely involved with the discovery, the analysis, and the work leading up to it all. Dr. Jamie Hodgkins is a paleoarchaeologist and associate professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado, Denver. And Dr. Kaylee Orr is a paleoanthropologist and associate professor of cell and developmental biology at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Thank you both for speaking with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're excited to hear about this discovery. Um, but first, I'd like to start with your respective areas of expertise, because you both have some pretty long titles. What's the difference between a paleoarchaeologist and a paleoanthropologist? And, and how does that factor into the work that each of you do? In some ways, I think we're splitting hairs there, but um, I was really trained in archaeological methods. Um, much of my training uh, took place in field excavations um, around the world. Uh, most, mostly I was trained in South Africa and, and in France doing excavation um, using, you know, 3D methods. So total stations and, um, and basically all the, the intricate science involved with removing artifacts from the earth. Um, but, you know, I also had a really good academic grounding in human evolution and um, my work really focuses on the, the later time period, so Neanderthals and modern human origin. So I really work at the Pleistocene. And um, Kaylee, I'll let you say what your specialty is. Uh, I think the main difference is, is that archeologists by and large deal with uh, human um, cultural remains and kind of 
what we call the residues of human behavior, what's left over after humans do the things that they do. And so, uh, for example, Jamie's an archaeologist because she studies, she especially is a zooarchaeologist. So she studies the animal remains uh, that are left over from uh, human activities. So the hunting, uh, the hunting and, and feeding ancient humans. I'm a, I'm a pretty strictly biological anthropologist, paleo, paleoanthropologist. And so I'm, I'm very much interested in uh, the evolution of human bodies, uh, the evolution of uh, human adaptations um, as they relate to changes uh, in our anatomy. And so a lot of my interests uh, go back even millions of years uh, as humans diverged from apes. And I've worked in more recent time periods, um, largely because um, if I'm to be honest, uh, my wife here is interested in those later time periods and that's drawn me into that. Um, but lots of interesting questions about uh, human evolution in the later time periods as well. Well, this takes us to this cave in present-day Italy where you two and your team made a pretty astounding discovery of this female infant burial. Before we get to that, though, tell us a little bit about the cave. What put it on your radar? What made it a site of interest to you? We um, were contacted, actually, by um, our colleagues um, who were who had sort of known that this cave was of interest it had been reported um uh, as as a as a potentially good site to excavate but um you know it's hard to put an excavation together it's hard to have the full um team of people with the expertise to excavate it's hard to have the funding it's hard to kind of pull it all together and we um we already had a team kind of assembled um and we had been working in Bulgaria and it wasn't really working out. And so um, we had a team that included um, two physical anthropologists, biological anthropologists, Kaylee and a colleague of ours, David Street. We had a geologist, um, Chris Miller and, and myself. And um, so we were just asked if we would be interested in, in looking at the site to excavate it with the people who ended up being our main collaborators, Fabio Negrino at the University of Genoa um, and Stefano Benazzi um, and um, Marco Parasani. So uh, it was just sort of like, I, I guess I would describe it as um, all of the stars sort of aligning where there was a cave site that had evidence of stone tools that were eroding out of um, the surface of it. So we knew that um, that there was archaeology present. We didn't know the extent of it, but we had a pretty good hunch that this was going to be a good cave site. And we had um, this already put together, this really amazing collaborative team of people willing to go and, and do the work. And our primary, our primary interests really were uh, in slightly earlier time periods from what we found uh, this recent burial in. We're really interested in kind of the earliest incursions of modern humans who originated in Africa and moved into to Europe and largely replaced uh, older, sometimes we call them archaic populations like Neanderthals who inhabited uh, uh, Europe and Western uh, Asia for hundreds of thousands of years. And then we get these newcomers, modern humans, homo sapiens uh, who kind of take over and so in Bulgaria, that was part of our interest. And in, and in this cave, this was our interest. And as it turned out, we found something a little bit uh, more recent than that. That turned out to be quite interesting, though. Tell us a bit about what the process is like at the dig now in the 21st century. I, I've seen some of the photos, and it, it looks like you're still using brushes, but there's also a lot of new technology at your disposal. 
there's there's just some tried and true methods for excavation and certainly when you're down in the pits and you're excavating you're using those brushes uh we excavated the infant burial uh, or, or one of the graduate students who worked with us who really was e expertly excavated it she essentially uh excavated it with like barbecue skewers um that kind of thing so we have a lot of low-tech stuff um, but then on the other hand, we have a lot of, of cutting edge methods that we use. The whole cave is mapped in 3D. We use modern 3D surveying methods. So you see folks who are out um, doing construction with the yellow box on the tripod and they're mapping things uh, digitally. Uh, we do that every single piece, every scrap of bone, every little piece of, of uh, stone tool gets mapped in in 3D space in the cave. And then in addition, we do a lot of uh, 3D, what's called 3D photogrammetry, where we, uh, we use 3D photography to essentially generate a 3D model of the cave in which we can return all of the artifacts to this 3D model and, highly, and richly document the excavation process. And we did that with this infant. And one of the, one of the uh, I think, things we're proud about about this burial is that uh, we, we used, um, I think, a pretty uh, new method, essentially, to to uh, 3D image the, the skeleton as it was coming out because the skeleton is very, it's very fragile and, and it's tiny. So you have to remove little bits from the, from the dirt. So you kind of expose a little bit and then you'd have to remove it, right? So you get down to the deeper stuff. But what we did was essentially took 3D photography of each piece, dozens and hundreds of images of each tiny piece as it would come out and we remove it and we'd do the next piece expose it, photo photograph it. And then in the end, digitally, we were able to reconstruct the position of the body as it would have been underneath the dirt. But of course we never saw it that way because we took out piece by piece by piece, but, but digitally, virtually, we were able to reconstruct exactly how it would have been uh, in the dirt. And that, um, that's something that's very important for understanding uh, the burial position, um, kind of the practices and, and, and how the, the child was treated. Uh, in the burial, and so those those sorts of basic data are really key and sometimes hard to do in an excavation setting, but new, new methods allow us to do new things. I want to step back to kind of right before the discovery. When did you get the sense that you might be around the bend from, from something pretty big? Was there anything that you came across that gave you an indication um, that something big was about to happen? Yeah, it was, um, so it was the end of the season and it was, um, we had been, Kaylee, Kaylee and, um, and Claudine Gravel Miguel, who is, who was a, um, who was just about to begin a postdoc at the time, they were working up in the cave trying to understand the stratigraphy better. Our geologists needed to understand how the site was formed, how sediments, dirt got into the cave. So they were opening up new excavation trenches um, and I was pregnant this season and I was just having a hard time getting up to this cave it's a pretty serious hike I mean even for someone who grew up in Colorado these this is a steep hike it's really difficult and um, it's a it's a mile to get to the site and a mile to get back and I just I just couldn't do it um, so I was in the lab working with the students which actually was pretty beneficial because I could see the artifacts that were being brought to the cave every night and we were washing them in the lab and we were looking at them and and then when the excavators came back at the end of the day they could see what they had excavated washed and laid out on the table and right towards the end of the season um 
we were starting to find these tiny pierced shell beads. And, you know, the first, we, these are not typical of um, the time period in which we were looking. They're not typical of a Neanderthal uh, assemblage. Um, and so they were, they're definitely unique. Um, we knew of course that they were intentionally pierced by humans. We didn't really know the time period at this point, but we found one the first day and it was kind of like, huh, that's unusual. The second day there was two. And the third day there was three. And at the third day, I was sort of nervous. And I was, um, we don't have good cell reception actually. Um, so in order for me to communicate with the cave, I have to wait for them to be at lunch and they have to be outside of the cave in order for me to call up there. And so I remember like really nervously calling over and over again until I got Kaylee at lunchtime around lunchtime and I was like you're there's something here like we, we're finding too many pierced shell beads you're getting close to something I mean they were excavating slowly but it was time to really really understand that we're about to come across something we didn't expect to come across and then it was at this point the season was coming to an end, right? You had to leave the site and come back and just sort of hope that it wasn't going to be disturbed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like, it, it was nerve wracking. I mean, we, we, we really, um, we really sort of talked and talked and talked and labored over the decision because um, in this was the last day. And the problem with it being the last day is that, you know, every major researcher on the project had to get back to teaching students had to get back to school and the grant money had run out. Like we were out of funds to pay for people to stay in the town. And so we knew that to do this responsibly, um, we had to leave it and we had to hope for the best. And um, so it was really a nerve wracking decision, but we went, you know, we went to the hardware store and we bought sand and we bought um, netting like for window netting and we covered it all up and, and did it, you know, as best we could. And it worked. It, I mean, it worked. Thank goodness. So. That's the first part of our conversation with Colorado scientists, Dr. Kaylee Orr and Dr. Jamie Hodgkins. The two of them and a team of researchers recently discovered the oldest female infant burial in Europe, dating back 10,000 years. We'll pick up their story of what happened when they got back to the cave after a short break. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're speaking today with Dr. Kaylee Orr, an associate professor of cell and developmental biology at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus, and Dr. Jamie Hodgkins, an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado, Denver. The two of them and a team of researchers discovered the oldest female infant burial site in Europe dating back 10,000 years ago. Before the break, we heard that the team had to leave this site shortly after they started coming across the infant's remains. You finally made it back to the cave and got back to work, and that's when your team was able to identify the remains of this infant child. Can you explain to us, lay people, how you were able to determine, uh, you know, how old the child was and how long ago she was buried? In 2018, we returned. It was about a five-week excavation just to, to remove the remains. Um, very, you know, as we as we work through it, because they're so fragile, it's a very careful job. Once removed uh, from 
the excavation, then uh, we started kind of the long process of the lab analysis, and that involved um, radiocarbon dating of the uh, of the child. So we had a very small piece of one of the little vertebrae uh, that we used uh, to to get an exact date of that exact child, right? How old how old that child was at ten thousand years old, using very uh, sort of modern all the modern methods and radiocarbon dating. So we were able to determine a lot of interesting things about. Uh, the biology of this individual. We knew that this was a really young child right away because that first season when I was at the lab, we um, we were taking the entire, we were excavating and putting all of the sediment into a bag and taking the entire bag of sediment down to the lab where I was sitting a little millimeter by millimeter sieve and going and just going through it. And so that summer, that first summer, I found the tooth buds, which tooth buds are just, just the parts of the enamel um, cap and the root has not developed yet. And so that already told us how young, that this was a very young um, infant. And then I also was finding these little tubes of the hand bones. So the little, um, parts of the hand in the center, the parts of the center bones of your hand were coming out in these tiny little tubes. And, um, and that, was the, that was the most emotional part for me to find because the hand is such an intimate part of the body. And here we were uncovering these tiny little infant hand bones. Absolutely. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but I'm curious about the naming process. Scientifically, the child is referred to as AVH1, um, but I also understand you gave the child the name Neve. So I'm wondering where the scientific name comes from, and then where did the name Neve come from? I guess it's typical to um, give specimens or specimens that come out of a cave um, a specimen number. So um, ABH1 means Armorvarana hominin 1. Um, and, you know, it's this is actually a bit of, of controversy um, about whether or not you should give a name to skeletons that are found archaeologically because we are not a part of the culture that she was born into. And we, in fact, can't really grasp what that culture was like. I mean, these are hunter gatherers who were living 10,000 years ago in Europe. Um, but there was this really uh, poignant moment when Kaylee and Fabio Negrino, who is Italian and his, he, his ancestry is deeply from this region of Italy in which we're working. So he, his family has been, been there for generations and generations. And, um, and you know, Kaylee was writing um, this name on the bags of, of Neve and we work in the Neva River Valley and it's the Neva River that sort of we have to walk over and this is what they built us a bridge to be able to get over when we come back. Um, and so he had, I guess, sort of misspelled the Neva, the Neva River as Neve, but Neve means snow. And when Fabio saw this, he started to cry. He got tears in his eyes and he said, this is, this is beautiful and this is perfect. And this is sort of um, a coming together of our teams. And so it was just like um, a very emotional, poignant moment. And for us, it gives us a connection to this little child who was born into this, this community 10,000 years ago. And it, but it's connected to, to also to our colleague who is deeply Italian and, and from this region of Italy. 
and to most of uh, many of our team members and ourselves included had our parents. Um, and of course, Jamie was pregnant when we first made discovery. Our, our daughter came with us in 2018 when she was six months old and, and was there for the recovery of this 10,000 uh, year old child. Uh, and, and many, again, many of our other colleagues also have children. And so everyone I think felt a deep emotional connection uh, to the find. And uh, it was, I think, challenging at times uh, for people to, to come to grips with that. And uh, the name, everyone connected with that name. Uh, and I think uh, it, it reflected some, you know, some true connection there for the, for the whole team. And I think it's, it's, uh, there's been connection, you know, for, for the public, who, people who've learned about the discovery. I think that it's just automatically this, um, uh, you know, uh, people can relate. How does this burial and its context fit into the larger scientific effort to better understand this uh, early Mesolithic time period? You know, we don't have much from this particular time period right at 10,000 years ago. There are quite a few burials after this point, um, and those burials are also highly decorated. But this this particular time period at 10,000 is, is just so interesting because the world's going through such major changes um, globally where we're ending, we're leaving the ice age and we're leaving this, this sort of pattern of seesawing, you know, warm and cold climate events. And we're moving into this time period we live in now, the Holocene. And with that would have come, you know, major changes in the environments people were living in. And we're also, it's just around the world, right at 10,000, you know, agriculture starts being developed in different places around the world. And so we're at this moment when human societies, human groups, many in Europe are about, you know, they're, they're hunter gatherers, but you know, in a, in a thousand years or so, they're going to start um, becoming more sedentary and becoming agriculturalists. And so you know, she, what she tells us, she is just this, this glimpse in time where we can tell that this young infant, just a two month old baby girl was considered a valued member of this group of hunter gatherers. And they gave her a proper burial and they gave her a highly decorated burial and they returned her to the earth with items that had been part of their, um, part of their group maybe for a generation or so they the beads that they buried her with were worn and so they were giving her their family heirlooms and they were burying her and so they it just gives us this glimpse that she was a valued person um at this time period that could have been you know could have been sort of environmentally in in flux basically there's a lot of questions about um how societies are structured were structured in the past in terms of you know egalitarian uh, uh, structures and how uh, gender and age and things factor in, into this, and we have especially very few data points that can tell us about how children were treated because children tend to be a bit rare in the fossil record, especially these uh, these really young individuals. And here in a time period, as Jamie said, that's immediately following the Pleistocene, the end of the Ice Age, and really kind of the last. Uh, hunter-gatherers, last stand of hunter-gatherers um, in Europe gives us a real glimpse into their society. Burials in general give us an important glimpse because burials intersect with the way that we view 
the universe, the way we view each other, uh, you know, what's in what values uh, a society holds. And in particular, children are really put a fine point on that. Um, and there are, um, and this being the oldest infant burial, um, or female infant burial, tells us that females, even the youngest females, were viewed as persons. You know, they were attributed personhood in their uh, their society. Well, let me wrap up by asking about what's next. Do you have plans to go back to the site to do more? Uh, and and if so, what what are you hoping to find there? We, we yeah, we would like to go back. Um, we've of course been in this um, COVID you know, ozone layer, whatever COVID, no man's land, I will say for the last few years, we haven't been able to go back. And this summer, we would like to go back and just study material that we've already excavated, um, maybe with just a few students. And this, of course, depends on whether or not our daughter who's younger than five can be vaccinated. So if she can, um, we'll we'll do that. And then, yeah, in the future, you know, we would like to, we need to get the permits back to excavate this site, but um, we have so much more to explore in the Neanderthal levels. Uh, we had, we had these, this really rich layer that we, we really need to go back and see, see what else is there. Um, and then we, you know, have some indications there may be other burials there. And I think it would, it's um, important for the record to know what else might still be there. Dr. Kaylee Orr is a paleoanthropologist and associate professor of cell and developmental biology at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. And Dr. Jamie Hodgkins is a paleoarchaeologist and associate professor of anthropology at CU Denver. This has been so fascinating. Thanks to both of you for speaking with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was great. Thank you. You can read more about the team's findings and see photos at our website, KUNC.org. And that's our show for today. After the Marshall Fire, financial support poured in for survivors who lost their homes. Some housing advocates wonder why the response is so different for those experiencing chronic homelessness. We'll have more on that tomorrow on Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.